Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. I can't believe that we don't talk about the issue we're going to talk about today more in the church. It seems that no one ever wants to talk about how much the Old Testament is binding on Christians today. Is it binding on Christians today? Is the law of Moses binding on Christians today? Are we supposed to be quoting from Leviticus, for example, as our guide for moral behavior? Are Christians supposed to keep the Old Testament law, the law of Moses? Are we? And how much of that should have an impact on our our laws, our governmental laws, our political laws? I mean, when we're having a conversation with somebody who might not be a believer— Do we quote from Leviticus and say, hey, this is why I think such and such a behavior is right or wrong? I mean, you can think about homosexuality or issues of that nature that typically come up nowadays. Should we be quoting from the Old Testament as our guide for moral behavior is the question that we're going to address today. And in order to do that, I want to go for a few minutes to look at Acts chapter 15, the book of Acts, the book of the activities, the book of how the church emerged from Jerusalem to spread around the world, a book that covers probably from about 30 or so AD to about 62 AD, about 32 years this book covers historically, written by Luke, as you know. And in Acts chapter 15, It says this, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, okay, stop right there. What? How many times have you heard people say, ah, why didn't Jesus appear to the Pharisees? He could have convinced them right away, right? Well, I don't know who he appeared to. I mean, if he appeared to the Pharisees, he did obviously appear to Paul, a Pharisee. I don't know if he appeared to a group of Pharisees or if the Pharisees were part of the 500 he appeared to that... Uh, Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, but Pharisees became believers. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, to Christianity. People overlooked that little verse there, but there it is. And it seems to me that had to be true. Why? Because Luke would have lost all credibility across the Jewish world if he had said a large number of priests had become obedient to the faith, if it really didn't happen. It must have really been true that priests, Pharisee priests in particular, became Christians. And you fast forward here to Acts chapter 15, and there are believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and they stood up and said this, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. That would be Peter, John, James, Paul, I think, was there as well. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Here's what Peter said. Peter, the the chief apostle at this point, the leader. Brothers. 
You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles meaning, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Then now, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. You see what Peter's saying here? Look, we couldn't even live up to the law of Moses. Now you want to put Christians, new Christians under the law of Moses? We couldn't even do it as Jews. Now you want to do, you want, you want to put them under the law of Moses? This is what Peter said. And here's what James said. James said, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them that to abstain from uh, food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat strangled animals, and from blood. So that's what he said. Let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles. We couldn't even live up to the Old Testament laws, Peter just said. But now, we're just going to say, look, here's what you need to do. Abstain from food food polluted by idols. Stay away from sexual immorality. That's going to be a problem if you don't. And then from meat strangled to animals and from blood. And then they wrote together this. They're writing a little note to folks who asked the question. Here's what they said. Here's, here's the quotation from Acts 15. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's it. <laughs> Those are the requirements to be a Christian. Did you hear that? The moral requirements here, abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Don't have that problem today. From blood from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Really, the only one that really applies today is sexual immorality. Just stay away from that. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's what they say. No, you don't have to live up to the law of Moses. Just these things right here. This is the first church council, ladies and gentlemen. I rarely hear people talking about this. But yet Christians, when they don't really think about this or delve into it, they almost think, and me included for many years, just thought, well, the whole Bible is just prescriptive on us. We've just got to do, you know, do all this stuff. No. No, Christ fulfilled the law. And in fact, as James said, we don't want to make it difficult for the Gentiles who are coming to Jesus. Just these things. Just stay away from these things. Now, there's a lot to talk about here. You might say, well, 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 what good is the Old Testament to us then? Well, let me put it this way. All of the Bible is instructive. You learn a lot about God and who he is and what he wants for us and how he has intervened in the world to save us from our own rebellion. How he added humanity over his deity, came to earth, allowed the very creatures that rebelled against him to torture and kill him so he could take the punishment due us on himself. And by trusting in him, you can have the punishment due you taken away and you can be given his righteousness. You're not just forgiven, but you're given his righteousness. 
So all of the Bible is instructive in that regard, but only some of the Bible is prescriptive. The rest of it is descriptive. You see, there's a difference between a prescription and a description. A prescription says you have to do this. You ought to do this. A description says this is what happened. We're describing what happened. Much of the Old Testament is simply describing what happened. It's not prescriptive on us today. Now, there are elements of the Old Testament that are prescriptive, in a sense, for example, like Proverbs, right? You're going to get good insights on how to live through Proverbs. The wisdom literature includes Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and um, the Proverbs, obviously. So you're going to get wisdom there. You're going to learn a lot about God from the Old Testament and how he intervened to save us. You're also going to learn a lot of history from the Old Testament, which is important. And you're going to learn a lot about lessons. Lessons on how we ought to behave because of the examples put forth by the Old Testament saints. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these things, meaning the Old Testament events, these things happened to them, meaning the Old Testament saints, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Like the Old Testament saints, they fell in many ways. Take their example and learn from it. So they were written down as instructions or as instructive in our lives so we may not fall like they did. Now we're going to talk a lot more about this. 888-589-8840 if you want to join the conversation. 888-589-8840. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go away. Hi, this is Ron Ball, and this is your Choose Greatness Minute. When I was a student at Asbury Theological Seminary, one of my professors was famous for his walk with God. I asked him to teach me how to learn what he had learned from God so I could duplicate that in my own life. He said, yes, you can learn, and I will teach you, but you have to meet me at 5.30 every Thursday morning. I was working two jobs, carrying a full academic load, newly married, and speaking in churches on the weekend. But I immediately agreed and met with him every Thursday morning at 5.30 for two years. That was a transformative moment in my life. God began to explode things I had never before experienced. One of the keys to godly growth is discipline. I had to get up when I wanted to sleep. Sometimes you have to do something you don't want to do to get God's best. Learn more at ChooseGreatness.com. ChooseGreatness.com. Let me give you a quiz. Got three questions. First, what's your opinion of the multiplication tables? Second, what do you think about the law of gravity? Third, how do you feel about the earth being round? You say, don't be silly, Steve. You don't have an opinion about those things. The multiplication tables, the law of gravity, the roundness of the earth, those are facts. That's how I feel when people question the existence of God. I want to say, are you some kind of fruitcake? The real question is, what is God like? Not, does he exist? The answer, he likes you so much that he gave his only son. I'm Steve Brown. You think about that. Hey, share what you just heard with a friend. Go to youthinkaboutthat.com. 
Facebook.com. Welcome back to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek and the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. Don't forget about the Facebook pages, ladies and gentlemen. We're up over, I don't know, 260,000 on the crossexamined.org Facebook page. The reason you need to like that page and also like Dr. Frank Turek, Dr. Frank Turek, is because what we do uh, when we stream events, and we often stream our college events, is uh, we put them on Facebook Live, which means if you like the page, you will probably see the stream come up on your wall. But you're not going to see the stream come up on your wall if you don't like the crossexamine.org Facebook page. And by the way, we also put up short videos on the Facebook page that are normally from the college campus Q&A videos that are just three or four minutes long. Someone asks a question, I give an answer, we go back and forth a little bit. And I've noticed that... if you share those videos with other people, they may watch it if it's just four or five minutes. They're not going to watch something that's, say, 45 minutes, but they'll watch something that's four or five minutes. And these little Q&As can then be a segue into a deeper understanding of Christianity because then they may go further to the website or they may go further into some other videos that we have up there, the longer ones. So if you would like those Facebook pages, crossexamine.org and Dr. Frank Turek, you'll be able to see those uh, streams and also those short Q&A interactions from the college campus. Today we're talking about, and we'll get to your questions a little bit later if you want to interact on this issue, how much is the Old Testament prescriptive or binding on Christians today? And I think the answer is not as much as many Christians think. I think the Old Testament is instructive, and this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. By the way, what I mentioned just before the break, I was reading from 1 Corinthians 10, and when I first became a Christian, I went through a a, a little workbook called Growing in Christ, and there were, I don't know, a dozen or so scriptures you needed to memorize, and one of those scriptures was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You know the passage, perhaps, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, that particular Scripture talks about how to avoid temptation. Well, what I just read before the break was leading up to that verse. Paul is talking about what happened in the Old Testament to the Old Testament saints is instructive to us. He says these things happened to them, the Old Testament saints, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He would not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So he's saying, it's look, the Old Testament saints have been tempted just, just the way you are going to be tempted. It's common to man, these temptations. If you don't want to fall like them, then ensure that you realize that God will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, quite frequently, the way out is to avoid the situation to begin with. <laughs> Don't even go into a, into a particular situation where you think you could be tempted. Now, so the Old Testament is helpful to us. It's instructive to us, but it's not all prescriptive to us. In fact, if you think about it this way, the Old Testament is God's covenant with Israel, whereas the New Testament is God's covenant with the world. Let me say that again. The Old Testament is God's covenant with Israel, but the New Testament is God's covenant with the world. And in the Old Testament, 
when it comes to laws, they're basically broken out into three categories of laws. You have the moral laws, like the Ten Commandments. You have the civil or judicial laws, you know, the if-then laws of Israel. If your donkey falls into a hole, what do you do? You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) There's all those that are just pertaining to Israel at the time. And then there's ceremonial laws, such as the food, clothing, circumcision. Those laws were designed to show Israel that they had to be separate from the surrounding nations. So these laws, the moral laws, like the Ten Commandments, the civil laws, the if-then laws of Old Testament Israel, and the ceremonial laws of Old Testament Israel, the food, the clothing, the circumcision requirements, those have passed away with the Old Testament. Oh, Frank, what do you mean? The, old, the, 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 the Ten Commandments don't apply. Just hold on. I'm getting there, okay? Those laws were dealing with the nation of Israel, but Christianity is not a nation. See, the Old Testament was prescriptive for the ancient nation of Israel. And a good deal of it can be carried over and applied to the New Testament. For example, as I mentioned, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, the celebration of marital love and the Song of Solomon, caring for the poor and vulnerable as the prophets remind Israel. All those things apply to us today. We can learn from them. But the laws themselves were for ancient Israel. They're not for us today. Now, I just said, well, what do you mean the Ten Commandments don't apply to us today? The Ten Commandments as such don't apply to us today, but nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. So they do apply to us because why? They're repeated in the New Testament. If a law in the Old Testament is not repeated in the New Testament, it's not binding on Christians today. Now, what's the only law that isn't of the Ten Commandments repeated in the New Testament? Think about this for a minute. The only law or the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament is keep holy the Sabbath. In fact, you may be surprised to learn that Paul actually tells you in Colossians chapter 2, he says this, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, there's the dietary laws, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come that were found. Or, 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 let me say that again. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Christ fulfilled all that. That no longer applies to us today. Now, I'm not saying it's not a good idea to go to church on Sunday, but it's not God's, it's not the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day for a Christian. There's, there's not a Sabbath day for Christians. Every day is a day in which we worship the Lord. Now, on Sunday, we, we go to church traditionally because that's the day he rose. And that's what the early church fathers did. That's what the, the, the apostles did. They no longer met on Saturday. They met on Sunday. Sunday was the day. But it wasn't a replacement of the Sabbath. Why? The Sabbath had arrived. Who's the Sabbath? Jesus is the Sabbath. He's our rest. The Sabbath indicated rest, and the rest has arrived. We rest in Christ. His work is what we rest in, not our own. We don't get to God by being good or by obeying the law. We rest in what Jesus did. And by the way, Abraham didn't get to God by being good or obeying the law either. Romans chapter 4. 
The gospel was preached to Abraham 480 years before the law was given on Mount Sinai. Abraham was saved before the law of Moses ever showed up. Just read the book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 4. So, the Old Testament is an old covenant. And the book of Hebrews lays this out very clearly. In fact, in Hebrews 9, it says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under what? The first covenant. In fact, in the chapter before in Hebrews chapter 8, it says, but now Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of what? A better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second covenant. You see, the Old Testament means Old Covenant. The New Testament means New Covenant. The Old Testament is God's covenant with Israel. The New Covenant is God's or the New Testament is God's covenant with the world. So, what does this mean practically to us? Well, we can learn a lot from the Old Testament. But as such, the Old Testament laws, particularly Exodus 20 through the Deuteronomy, that's the, the law of Moses. Exodus 20, 20, Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, through Deuteronomy. We can learn a lot how God operates there. We can learn a lot about Israel, obviously, and the requirements God had for Israel, but those laws are not binding on us today. You see, in the, in the Old Testament, you had the law of Moses. That's what was given on Mount Sinai. In the New Testament, you have the law of Christ. That was given in the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned in a previous broadcast here that if you look at Matthew and Exodus, Matthew parallels Exodus and one of the things he parallels is the fact that in the Old Testament, Moses goes up on the mountain and God opens his mouth, so to speak, metaphorically, and he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, the book of Matthew talks about how Jesus goes up on the mount and he opens his mouth. Why? Because he has the authority of God. He is God. Just as in the Old Testament, God opens his mouth and gives the law on Mount Sinai. Jesus goes up on the mount, the Sermon on the Mount, opens his mouth and gives the law of Christ. The law of Christ is what's binding on us today, so to speak. And we obey the law of Christ out of gratitude, out of what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us. If you love me, you'll follow my commandments, he says. But we shouldn't be quoting from Leviticus uh, to other Christians or even non-Christians and saying, oh, this is what God thinks about such and such. This is, that's what he thought about the Old Testament. That's what he thought was normative on the and prescriptive on Israel, but it's not prescriptive on us today. Now, it is repeated in the New Testament, certain aspects of the Old Testament. Sexual immorality, for example, is one of the four things that I mentioned earlier that the first church council said you need to avoid if you're a Christian. And sexual immorality covered every sexually immoral issue or behavior under that category. You always say, well, Jesus never talked about, say, homosexuality or premarital sex or any of these things. Or, Well, no, actually he did. When he used the phrase or the term sexual immorality, that covered any sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and a woman. 
He talked about the category. He didn't necessarily talk about the individual sins, but he talked about the category under which the individual sins were contained. It would be like saying, well, Jesus never talked about felony home invasion, so I guess that's okay. No, he talked about the category theft, even if he didn't specify felony home invasion. He's covering all theft by talking about theft, including felony home invasion. So it'd be silly to say, well, Jesus never talked about felony home invasion, so I guess it must be okay. No, silliness, okay? So, how much? We got more to talk about. How much does the Old Testament apply to us today? We'll get into that more after the break, and we'll get to your phone calls on this. 888-589-8840, 888-589-8840. And if you want to take the conversation in a different direction, you want to talk about other issues, questions about apologetics or the Bible or theology, you can ask it too today. We're live. 888-589-8840. I'm Frank Turk. Back in two. Don't go away. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. As believers, we're called to make disciples of all nations. This is Bert Harper. Join me for Exploring Missions, revealing the hearts of missionaries, their stories, and lives across the world or across town. Exploring Missions, Sunday afternoons at 1 Central on American Family Radio. Life, Love, and Family, featuring the American Association of Christian Counselors President, Dr. Tim Clinton. Each weekday evening, you'll hear Dr. Clinton and his expert guests address important and sometimes difficult issues of our day that impact your life, your love, and your family, using the scriptures as their text. Access to archive programs is available at lifeloveandfamily.net. Life, Love, and Family, 11 p.m. Central on American Family Radio. Here for your encouragement and your walk with God. This is David Wolin with Haven Ministries inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. Early in school, students learn that truth is discovered by observation and testing. We learn that seeing is believing. No wonder we have such a hard time then believing in things we can't see. And yet that's how faith works. According to Hebrews 11.1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence and assurance, where do you get those? You can't prove that Jesus was God in human flesh, that he rose from the dead, that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. So how does anyone grow confident in their faith? It's something that the Holy Spirit has to do in your heart, and it's nurtured through daily time in the Word. Anchor Devotional can help you get that time daily. Try it out today. Visit GetAnchor.com. Welcome back to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. How much of the Old Testament applies to us today? We've been talking about the difference between a prescription and a description. Uh, Much of the Bible is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It tells us what happened. It doesn't tell us what we ought to do. Some of it tells us what we ought to do, but we have to keep that distinction clear. Anyway, now, by the way, before uh, we go to your phone calls, 888-589-8840, 888-589-8840. I want to mention tomorrow I'll be at First Baptist Church Rogers, Arkansas, during all three services in the morning. And then tomorrow night at 6 p.m. we'll be doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And then next week, you're not going to want to miss the National Conference on Christian Apologetics here in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
SES.edu. That's Southern Evangelical Seminary's website, SES.edu. Uh, check it out. It's the best apologetics conference probably in the world. It's the 24th annual. There'll be many speakers there. Myself, Jay Warner Wallace, Norman Geisler, Gary Habermas, Hugh Ross, Ken Ham. Uh, Ken Ham's going to have actually a debate, uh, kind of a dialogue with Richard Howe. Listen to our last podcast from our last radio program from last week. We talked a little bit about that. He'll be there. Uh, there'll be many other speakers there that you don't want to miss so hope you can be there. It's next Friday or this coming Friday and Saturday, the 13th and 14th here in Charlotte. Go to ses.edu to sign up for that. You're not going to want to miss two full days. In fact, there's a debate on Friday night between Richard Howe and Dan Barker on the existence of God. So it's a it's a full weekend, all day Friday into Friday night and then Saturday to about 5 o'clock. So uh, – it's the 24th annual. Don't want to miss it. SES.edu. All right, let's go to the phone lines and see what you guys are thinking about the Old Testament. How much does it apply to us today? We'll start with Joshua in Virginia. Josh, where in Virginia are you? Uh, basically, mechanics still right outside of Richmond. Outside of Richmond. All right, what's going on? Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you so much, Brother Frank. I just had a, a couple of quick comments here. Yeah. So, and then in Acts 15. We, uh-huh. we read that passage a lot, and, uh, you know, one thing that comes to mind first is that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I look here at, at this passage, and we talk about different things that they're not supposed to do, you know, abstaining from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, strangled by animals strangled and from blood. But then the next verse says, For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of interesting that he's telling the believers to follow some parts of the law because each of those things are from the law. It's sexual immorality, blood, strangled, idols. So he's not saying don't obey the law. He's saying obey the law. These first things are easy to first do, and they're detrimental. You have to do these things because they're serious to an individual, the congregation, and the health. Then the very next thing he's saying is don't worry. They're going to get the rest of it because every Sabbath they're going to be going and hearing the law of Moses all people are going to be hearing it, and they're going to learn. You don't want to put a yoke on someone so heavy that's a new believer that you have to obey all these things at once. You want to mm-hmm. give them the most important things in their life that they mm-hmm. need to deal with. They can maybe break up their marriage, give them health problems, and then eventually they're going to learn more about it. And ultimately, I believe, well, what, what should we do? Well, what would Jesus do? Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And what would he do right now the same as he did back then? He would obey every word from the mouth of God because it is God's holy word that is for us, each and every person. So if we were to follow him, it's good to look at what he did and what did he do? He made everything that God ever said. Thank you, brother. God bless. But Josh, you still there? Don't go away. Yes, sir. Josh, you still there? Yes, sir. Uh, I, I, I just me? want, I, yeah, I just wanted to ask, are you saying that we have to obey all 613 laws of the Old Testament? I'm saying we get to. It's our, it's our privilege. And well, if well, it applies to us. It, and if obviously, it, if, 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 I'm not, if I'm a man... Uh-huh. And there's ones that apply to women that wouldn't apply to me because okay. I'm not a woman. No, no, no I, no, I, I, I understand that, but let me let me just ask you this. Um, Paul says in Colossians chapter two that don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day, right? So, well, he's saying I think what he's saying right there is don't let anyone accuse you or blame you or be against you if you do observe it. Not right, what, telling you to say not to, right? Because he did himself, right? I mean, many times in the book of Acts we see him doing such things. We see him obeying the law, and uh, 
we know that, you know, God's Word doesn't change, God doesn't change. So for him to say something is established, he says in Amos that I would reveal to my prophets if I'm ever going to do anything. The prophets did never tell us that God's going to change his Sabbath. Okay, but so hold on. Uh, hold, Josh, yeah. uh, oh, sorry, I'm hearing some, some feedback there. Anyway. I'm here. Uh, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, no, I was, I was just going to say, though, <clears throat> that God doesn't change, but his commands can change. Because when his commands change, his nature doesn't change. Uh, I mean, you do this as a parent. If you're a parent, right, um, the, you may change your command to your child, but you haven't changed. For example, you're trying to love your child. So when your child's young, you say, don't play in the street, right? But when your child gets older, you go hit the streets and go get a job. Both of those commands are rooted in love. You're looking out for your child. You're loving your child. You want what's best for your child. But your command has changed because the situation has changed. So if God changes commands, dealing particularly with the civil law, the ceremonial law, he's not going to change commands with regard to moral law because that's based on his nature. But the civil or the, or the ceremonial laws can change because the situation has changed. We're no longer in Old Testament Israel. We no longer even have a temple. We can't bring anything to the temple. There's no temple, right? So how could we obey all the, the, the laws from Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy um, unless we go to some temple in Jerusalem, which doesn't exist, and continue to do everything the, the laws say there? How could we even do that? If we wanted to, we couldn't do it. Well, the interesting thing is, is a lot of those things that are, quote-unquote, ceremonial, they were foreshadowing of what was to come through Messiah. So when he did that, it, he was the one that was ultimately even meant to fulfill those things. So we have that in him. Right, but if that's things the we point. Cannot do, then we cannot do them, right? However, it does say in the prophets that there will be, additionally, there will be offerings, there will be people that come and give their offerings, and if they don't bring those offerings, they won't receive rain in the later kingdom. So we're going to see reestablishment of that kingdom and reestablishment of offerings giving as the, our king will be with us. That's so, one, yeah. That's one time, eschatological viewpoint, but that's not us today. If even if that's true, that's a future time. That's not us today. We don't we don't bring lambs to the temple today, as as the law of Moses tells well, us to do. We correct. Have, we have the lamb that we need, right? We have that's, the lamb that that we no, need. No, yeah, to, I I agree with you, Jot. That's why I'm saying that Christ fulfilled all those laws, and it's in Him we rest. We no longer are obligated to obey all those laws. Because he has fulfilled them for us. Now, there is a law of Christ, as, as Paul talks about, and there are moral requirements that are put on us, and nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But the Old Testament as such is no longer binding on us as Christians, particularly the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, Exodus 20 to, to Deuteronomy. But I appreciate your perspective. Thanks, thanks very much, yeah, Josh. I, I just, Go I, ahead. I just think... Are you still there? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Get Thank a party you. shot. Go okay. ahead. I just, I'm sorry. I just think that, you know, it, it's by grace that we are faith through our, we have faith and it's God has grace unto us and, and that's the only way. But when we see the amount of love that the Son of God had towards the Father, he didn't dare want to disobey any respect. So I don't look at it as a privilege. I don't look at it as that we're forced to or that we have to or, or, or we're obligated to. I look mm -hmm. at it as a blessing and it's an opportunity and out of love because he has saved us, we want to obey him. And we course. want to walk as he wants us to, because if we love him, we'll obey his commandments. And if That's we right. are to follow Christ, we ought to walk as he walked. And That's he walked out of love and obedience to the Father. Right, right. The question is, what does that require of us today, love and obedience to the Father? Is it all the, the Old Testament laws? 
when the book of Hebrews says all that's been passed away? Or is it the new law of Christ when he goes to the Sermon on the Mount or goes to the mountain and opens his mouth and teaches like God did? I got to move on, though, Josh. I appreciate the call. Let me go to Catherine in North Carolina. Catherine, you're on with Frank Turek. Go right ahead. Uh, help us, Frank. You help us to think, and thank you. Oh, thank Listen, you. Uh, if a Muslim man uh, becomes a Christian and he has four wives, what does he do with the other three, and can he never become an elder in the church because he's not a man uh, faithful to one wife? Wow. I don't know how to answer that. That's amazing, Catherine. That, you're trying, we're trying to unscramble eggs then, right? Yeah. <laughs> what do we do in that situation? You know, I don't, I don't know. Can he not be an elder? Huh? Can he not be an elder because well, he's not a man of faithful of one wife? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not. I, I mean, that's, that's a unique situation. I don't know. Um, you know, it's interesting. Well, we need to win the Muslims, so we need to think about it. Yeah, that's right. That's a, gr- that's a great it. question. That's an answer. Well, here's an answer from, let's say, from the Roman Catholic perspective. Um, you know that Roman Cat, there are Roman Catholic priests who are married. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, um, because, like, if a, if, a, if a man is married and then wants to become a priest, a Roman Catholic priest, whether he's an Anglican priest already or if he just wants to become a priest, he can become a priest and just be married. Now, I don't know what, what, what would be said if a Muslim who had four wives tried to become a Christian. I don't know. I mean, that just seems that's, – that's an interesting question. Never thought of it. Um, I don't know what would happen. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what a local church body would do. I don't even know if, if, if the guy became a Roman right. Catholic, what would they do? I, I don't know. It's a good well, question. Now, the Roman Catholics would have never recognized three of the marriages in the first place. But yeah, maybe they would annul three of them. I don't know. Yeah, it's a Muslim. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that would be. No wonder they don't come to the Lord. Now, now, Catherine, why are you asking this question? Is there a situation in in your church? Well, that, just, uh, well there are several Muslims around our town, and I've given them books to read. But you know, you think about it. Uh, in one of Nabil, the guy that had Nabil Qureshi, yes, his book, yes, his book I gave, calls. Uh, you know, he had so much respect for them, and but yet told them the truth. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, that wasn't answered in the book either that I remember. And I, I thought, well, no wonder they take so long to come to the Lord because they don't know what to do, and we don't either. <laughs> That's a great yes. It's a great question. I, I I'd have to think it through to figure out what would be the appropriate course of action for a Muslim if he did become a Christian and he had four wives. What and would he do? By each of them. Yeah, yeah. he might. That it might be that somehow he stays in the, the marriages for the sake of the children. I don't know. It's a, it's a great question. It's a great After question. After all, God offered to give David another wife. That's right. Well, yeah, there, there's the Old Testament issue of polygamy. The problem in the Old Testament with regard to polygamy is, first of all, God says in Deuteronomy 17, 17, don't multiply wives. And secondly, everybody that got involved in polygamy, it turned out to be a disaster. So... Just because something is described in the Old Testament, and by the way, that's a good, I'm glad you brought that up, Catherine. Here's a good example of the difference between a description and a prescription. A lot of people will say, well, in the Old Testament, there's polygamy. Yeah, that's a description. It wasn't a prescription. It was a description. And if you you watch what happens descriptively to David and Solomon and all these people, their lives get blown up, basically, because, at least partially, they got involved in polygamy. Great question, Catherine. Thanks for bringing a conundrum to us. We'll go back to your calls uh, right after the break. 888-589-8840. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Don't forget about liking our Facebook page, crossexamined.org, and download the app. 
Cross-examined app, two words in the App Store. Cross-examined. I'm back in two minutes. Several firefighters died when the small brush fire roared out of control. They tried to escape by heading for a nearby road, but it turned out to be a dead end. Many people make the same kind of mistake when it comes to their spiritual destiny. That's because most people are counting on their religion or spirituality to make things right with God. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Whatever road you're on may seem right, but if it isn't God's road, it doesn't matter how right it seems. Price to be paid is death. That's what you and I deserve for hijacking our lives from God. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all men. He loves you too much to lose you. So he went to the cross to pay that price to remove the sin that will keep you out of heaven. To learn more, call 888-NEED-HIM. Jesus won't lead you down a dead-end road. Call 888-NEED-HIM. Do you want to go around the word in 180 days? Welcome to Tips with public school educator, Dr. Bill Ziegler. If you were to ask me if I wanted to go around the world in 180 days, I would jump on board in a minute. But this is a little different. Karen Seddon, a leader in Christian Educators, started a program called Around the Word in 180 Days. This is a devotional to get you digging into the Word as a Christian teacher and encourage you to really stay strong in your faith while teaching in our public schools. Karen's faithful and dedicated service provides educators a totally free devotional that they can learn and grow deeper in God and their faith while becoming a teacher in our schools. Visit our website today to get connected with this great devotional. We are here to serve you. We are here to bless you. We are here to pray for you at Christian Educators. Visit the TIPS website at 4tips.org. That's the number 4, T-I-P-P-S dot O-R-G. How are you, folks? Frank Turek with you this morning. Eh, If you're listening on Sunday, it's the afternoon. But we're talking about how much of the Old Testament is prescriptive on us today. And I'm trying to make the case it's not prescriptive, particularly the law of Moses. That's been fulfilled by Jesus. And when I say the law of Moses, I'm talking about from Exodus 20 to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in fact, my co-author, Dr. Norman Geiser, has a great book, a lot of great books. One of them is called When Critics Ask. It's now called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, but it originally was was published 25 years ago called When Critics Ask, and it goes through different issues in the scriptures that critics ask about, alleged contradictions, these kind of things. And in one section, I think he's talking about Matthew chapter 5, he talks about how much of the Old Testament is binding on us today. He wrote this with Tom Howe, another professor at our seminary. Here's what he says. Christians today are no more under the Ten Commandments as given by Moses to Israel than we are under the Mosaic Law's requirement to be circumcised, see Acts 15 and Galatians 3, or to bring a lamb to the temple in Jerusalem for sacrifice. The fact that we are bound by similar moral laws against adultery, lying, stealing, and murder no more proves that we are still under the Ten Commandments than the fact that we are That there are similar traffic laws in North Carolina and Texas proves that a Texan is under the laws of North Carolina. The truth is that when one violates the speed laws in Texas, he has not thereby violated a similar law in North Carolina. 
nor is he thereby bound by the penalties of such laws in North Carolina. In a like manner, although both the Old Testament and New Testament speak against adultery, nevertheless, the penalty was different. Capital punishment in the Old Testament and only excommunication from the church in the New Testament with hope of restoration upon repentance. So there's a difference, obviously, between the Old and the New. And there are laws similar in the New similar to what is said in the old, um, but because they're similar doesn't mean that we're bind, the Old Testament laws are binding on us. The New Testament laws are, but not the Old Testament. All right, uh, let me go to TJ in Louisiana. TJ, you're on with Frank Turk. Go right ahead. Hey, thanks, man. Um, I want to say about this, you know, Ephesians 2.8 says, you know, let me, let me quote it right. Are you saying through both? Well, grace through faith you're saved, right? Mm-hmm. It is the not gift of works. Of God. Right. Yeah, not of works. Okay, now the, the law was made by Paul, but Paul said, you know, you can live by the law, but the law does not save you. And I think we're having a, um, you know, a kind of confusion about what saves you. Does the law save you, or does Christ save you? And that's, I think that's a big problem. Well, it, 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 might, it might be considered a problem, but <clears throat> that's what Martin Luther decided to uh, highlight when he tried to reform the the church 500 years ago this month, by the way, <clears throat> where he basically pointed out that we are saved by grace through faith <clears throat> and not of works. Gee, I'm having trouble speaking this morning. Sorry. So yes, TJ, that is really the nub of the Reformation. That's why the Reformation occurred, because we're not saved by the church. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith, by trusting in Christ. Now, we will work. We will do good works because Christ has paid the penalty for us out of gratitude for what he's done. But we do not do good works in order to get saved. We do good works because we've been saved. All right, good insight. Thanks so much. Uh, Let me go now to, I guess, Maria in Virginia. Maria, where in, in Virginia are you? Sanston, just outside of Richmond. All right, another call from the Richmond area. How you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for your broadcast. Yeah, you may want to turn your radio down because there is a delay. So turn that radio okay. down. Just, just talk okay. to me. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I would like to know, in the Old Testament, it speaks of taking a wife from different countries. Mm-hmm. Is that true today? I mean, does that have anything to do with the uh, interracial marriages today? No, because in the Old Testament, the prohibition against marrying other or or women from other countries or men from however you want to put it, um, that was to keep Israel from worshiping other gods because God knew that if you married across religious lines that there would be a tendency toward apostasy, there would be a tendency toward idolatry, and Solomon proved it. It pulled him away, and uh, many other Old Testament uh, figures proved it as well. It pulled him away from worship of the true God. And by the way, in the New Testament, there's a similar kind of request or command that God gives. It's more of a command than a request. Marry in the Lord. In other words, marry somebody who's a Christian. doesn't have anything to do with their race. There's really only one race, the human race. doesn't have anything to do with their ethnicity. It has to do with their belief system. Does the person trust in Christ for their salvation? Is the person a Christian? Because if you're unequally yoked, a reference obviously to uh, 
to agriculture at the time. If you're unequally yoked, there's going to be trouble. And you, you, marriage is hard enough already. You don't want uh, to be married to somebody if you can avoid it. You don't want to be married to somebody of a, of a different worldview, a different religion. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you so much and for the I, call. Thank you. All right. Thanks thank so much. Thank you. Let me go to, uh, let's see, Terry in Texas. Terry, we've got just a couple minutes, so we've got to make it quick. Go ahead. Okay, God bless you and your ministry, sir. Thanks, Terry. Uh, I want to go to the Mosaic Law. You were talking about uh, that and immorality. Mm-hmm. And the Mosaic Law in uh, Matthew chapter 19, uh, the disciples bring up the thing about, uh, or the Pharisees bring up the thing about marriage and divorce. Right. And Jesus uh, uh, brings up, the fact that you could only have uh, uh, oh, your wife divorced except for sexual immorality. Right. And his disciples go to the flesh and they say, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Mm-hmm. And in the ensuing verse, our Lord goes, broadens the whole thing into sexual immorality in general and points us back to Father God when he says uh, uh, there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Uh, that points us back to God's law in not just uh, adultery, but also homosexuality and every form of sexual, sexual immorality. Um, because functionally, some men find difficulty having relations with women, effectively. They consider themselves eunuchs from the womb. Um, there are eunuchs who were made that way, mostly in that culture by men, uh, so they could be uh, concubine guards and things. And there were also eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven, because of the purity of our lifestyle. And the fact that, as uh, James said and told the young church, we abstain from sexual immorality of every kind which was proscribed by Father God in His law. Right, but, but the point is, the point I'm making, I don't, I don't know if you agree with me or not, I guess the point I'm making is that the sexual immorality laws that are in the Old Testament, many of them are repeated in the New Testament, but they do have different oh, penalties, right? I mean, I, we just mentioned about adultery. Oh, yeah, in, in the Old Testament, adultery was was a, a, a capital crime. In the New Testament, you're, oh, you're excommunicated from the church. Uh, with hope right. of restoration. So there is a difference there. And using right, the law of love, right? Right, right. So, so just because the laws are similar doesn't mean that they're the same. They're not. Um, what was binding in the Old Testament on Israel is not binding in the New Testament on Christians. Do you agree with that? Right. Yes, okay. absolutely. That's my point, and and that's kind of the point of the whole program, was just to point out, look, if you're going to go to another Christian and you're going to say, well, adultery's wrong, um, yes, it's wrong in the Old Testament, and yes, it's wrong in the New Testament. The penalties are different, however, and Amen. what's normative on us today is the New Testament, the New Covenant, Amen. and as as uh, the writer of Hebrews says, you're, you wouldn't need a New Covenant, you wouldn't need a better covenant unless the Old Covenant had a fault in it, and Amen. the Old Covenant did, and this sounds crazy for some for the first time you're hearing it, the the Old Covenant did have a fault to a certain extent. It was not God's ideal. In fact, since you brought up uh, Matthew 19, let me just uh, point this out. And thanks for your call, Terry. i got to let you go because I'm running out of time. But um, right here in Matthew 19, here's what Paul says. I'm at Paul. 
Matthew says. This is what this is what Jesus says. Matthew's recording it. He says uh, in verse eight, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. It was not this way from the beginning. In other words, God to a certain extent accommodated to the culture of the Old Testament. But it shouldn't have been this way. But he said, since your hearts were hard, I gave you an exception here. Now, it's not the, that's why a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, you go, this thing seems crazy. This doesn't meet modern standards and all this. Yeah. Well, it wasn't God's ideal from the beginning. God is just trying to get people saved. And the way he does that is he brings a promised Messiah into the promised land uh, or through the promised land. Uh, well, let me put it another way. He brings the promised people to the promised land so he can bring the promised Messiah to save the whole world. The Bible, its primary goal is not right and wrong, although it obviously deals in that. It traffics in that. The Bible's primary goal is to make you wise unto salvation. That's what 2 Timothy 3 says. That's the goal of the Bible. That's the purpose of the Bible. It's not to detail every moral issue, although it obviously traffics in that. So that's the purpose, to bring people to Christ ultimately. And the Old Testament is a, a valuable, very valuable um, section for us to understand what God is up to and who God is. But it is not normative on us today. In fact, it was uh, N.T. Wright who said this. He said, Torah, the Torah, the law of Moses at Sinai, is given for a specific period of time, and it is then set aside, not because it was a bad thing, now happily abolished, but because it was a good thing whose purpose had now been accomplished. He said it was kind of like a booster rocket that got us to a certain point, and then the booster rocket fell away, so then the law of Christ could take over. So, um, again, there's a lot of great things that we can learn from the Old Testament, but it's not binding on us the law of Moses, Exodus 20 to Deuteronomy, like the New Testament is. So just keep that in mind, all right? And uh, you can read more about it on our website. Uh, Jonathan McClatchy had an article there from a number of years ago. You can check it out from uh, 2011. I'm Frank Turek. I'll see you guys next week right here. God bless. God bless.